Hi everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for being here today and listening to the show. If you'd like to support Behind the Smile, you can do so by following this podcast and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. If you'd like to check out this week's Behind the Smile photo, head to ashbutters.com where you'll find all of the episode show notes. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Joining me today is Ed Lattimore. Ed is a former professional heavyweight boxer, a competitive chess player, and a best-selling author. Ed's writing focuses on self-development, realizing your potential, and living life in sobriety, all of which he approaches from personal experience overcoming poverty and addiction. Ed's sobriety date is the 23rd of December, 2013, and he's here today to share his story. Ed, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you doing today? I'm doing I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm so, so good. We were just chatting before we hit record here that you've just moved house. Yeah, it's, it's nice having uh, another, you know, place, each place you... You go, you put down roots, and you 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 build memories. And the last place we lived, we we built some memories, made a new new addition to our family, which is why we had to move. We really liked where yes. we were living, but but we needed more space because the baby was like, "Well, I need more space," and now we got to listen to him. So, <laughs> congratulations! That must be quite the experience for coming a father. Uh it, you know it, it it's fun. I'm. I, Fun is a good word, um, but but I don't know if fun is the best word. It's just overall when I think about all the emotions that I experience day to day about it, new worries and new fears. Mm. Uh, overall, it's it, it's cool. I think this is a really this is this is just an interesting phase of life to go through. Wasn't sure if mm. I get to go through it. Now I'm here, and and so now someone will outlive me, and I get to like rear someone up from the ground and. And, you know, help them to turn to someone who contributes positively to humanity. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Well, you've got a huge story, Ed. I've been reading a lot about you researching before we had this interview today, and I'd love to dive into your story. But before we do that, I'd love for our audience just to get to know you a little bit better. So can we kick it off with you sharing where do you live, what does an average day look like, and what do you do for fun? So I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the United States. Uh, I assume your audience is international, since you're not even in America. You're you're literally uh, halfway around the world. 
And, That's it. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, an average day for me right now is is unpacking or waking up and, and, you know, entertaining my kid for the first few hours in the morning, things like that. Uh, but but what, it, what I try to do every day now, you know, I've got a, a book deal. I've got to finish this book. So I write or research uh, little parts of it every day. Uh, I'm also trying to, to get myself back into quite literally fighting shape. So uh, now I have this this wonderful area to work out. And that's one of the, the one of the nice upgrades about having a house is you get like a garage and a driveway and stuff like that. So uh, I, I try and work on that. And and in general, uh, every day is is really spent purposefully. I really, you know, I kind of miss, you don't even realize like how much time you waste when you don't have priorities. And then when you get those priorities, you're like, oh, this can go, this can go. Well, that definitely got to go, you know, and you mm. figure things out. In terms of fun, when I do get those moments for fun, um, I'm I'm a really, I don't have many things I do for fun. But the one thing I do really enjoy is I, I like watching uh, a really good movie or finding a good series. Right now, uh, the two series I'm watching, I'm watching Snowfall and, and The uh, Godfather of Harlem. And I don't just watch it anything you know i'm not that guy it's like give me something to binge give me something to binge uh, you know uh, a lot of criteria i really hate things to get hyped up so if it's popular i i won't watch it out of principle <laughs> just because everyone yeah. else thinks that i should watch it and and i in general I either don't trust the majority of people's opinions uh or if it appeals to so many people uh i i feel like something about it is generic enough to where I don't need to watch it. Now, if I go back later and it turns out it's great, you know, that's another thing entirely. Yeah. But, but yeah, that, that that's pretty much what I would consider my, my pure fun. I mean, and I guess I play a lot of chess. Yeah. How did you get into the chess world? That's kind of crazy. I wish I could tell you. Um, I, I feel like I've been playing for a long time, but in terms of taking my game seriously enough, to where I got a coach, really started studying. I know that didn't happen. I had my coach before we because they're, they're like these events in your life that you mark off with time. Uh, we were living in Portugal four years ago, and I had my coach over there. So I guess I probably got a coach about five years ago and steadily uh, improved. And now I'm like right on the precipice of, of being like a class A player which was just, you know what, what does that mean the average person won't beat me anyone who does it for a living will wipe the floor with me <laughs> so i've got to know did you watch the queen's gambit because that oh, was a pretty for, popular show <laughs> yeah you know and and once again i wasn't gonna watch it because it <laughs> because it was popular and then some and people just kept telling me like it's about chess about you gotta watch it you want to talk about it? that's why i watched it and i was I was like, yeah, you know, they did a they did a great job. I I really liked it. Um, I thought they did a good because whenever you make a movie about a a competitive event, you you have to walk a fine line and not make it make most of it about the event because that's boring. That's why mm-hmm. the best sports movies they capture the human story behind it. If you think about mm-hmm. a Rocky movie, for example. Not a lot of boxing in most Rocky movies. Boxing is just like the overarching theme. 
uh, where we're dealing with human and interpersonal relationships. Same idea with the, like the Queen's Gambit. Mm, yeah, nice. And you mentioned that you're training to get back into some sort of fighting shape. Are you literally training to fight again? Uh, not not, not yet, but that's one of the, the goals. I, I have thought long and hard about it. And and I, I spent most of my career, no, not most, I spent my entire career uh, as, as a heavyweight. And I'm a small heavyweight. I mean, if, if I could go back and do anything over again, I would have dropped weight. And went to cruiserweight. Well, mm. you know, but, but partly because I don't drink, and and also because I I uh, take good care of myself, and and the technology is just improved about what we know in terms of uh, training and nutrition. Well, I, I figured, you know, I got a I got a chance to to try it again. It times up great because I'm I'm one of the things I learned on accident really with my my first self published book. Is is just how interesting uh, a, a a boxer is is a is a guest on a podcast. So I'm sitting there thinking, like, okay, if, I, if I've got this book coming and I want to market it and have mm. this big appeal, and I've been doing all this coaching, so I, I really understand a lot more about the sport the, that I did before I I stopped fighting. So I said, let's go try out some stuff. Let's let's see where it goes. You know, worst case. It'll be a terrible idea, uh, best, <laughs> like, like, but but I just don't think it will be. Uh, but mm. best case, you know, uh, some really cool things happen, and, and I'm able to to really extend the reach of my message, and mm. and that is really what motivates me. Like a friend of mine asked me today, he was like, you know, what, what's making you think about getting back into it? And I I, had, I didn't realize I had so many reasons about about trying this out. You know, so zeros, mm. and and the best part, none of those reasons have to do with money because there is no money in boxing. Uh, if it was a if it was a money decision, there I go get a job, right? <laughs> uh, nah, but, but but that's important because uh, you, you gotta when you pursue and do something as difficult as, as fighting, you don't do it because it's gonna pay well. Uh, the the mm. top is very much a pyramid. And the, the top is where most of the money is, but most of the people at the bottom and there's there's nothing there. Yeah, well, I can't wait to see what you do with that. That sounds really exciting. Now, Ed, I've asked you to bring in a photo today. And this photo is from a time in your life where you were hiding behind a smile. So you were projecting one version of yourself to the outside world, but the reality was that didn't match your internal world. You were struggling and you were hiding behind a smile and the world didn't know. Can you tell me about the photo that you've chosen? What was going on for you at that time in your life? So so this is, you know, to the outside world, this is a really great time of my life. I, uh, I'm posing at the, at the Rock Boxing Gym in Carson, California, right outside of Los Angeles. And because of how I had performed in the National Gold Glove Tournament, they brought me out and they were sponsoring me. So I'm I'm an amateur I'm making like four grand a month. They're paying all of my bills and my expenses. And, and it's a really great time in my life, uh, or so it seems. But I, I'm I'm incredibly lonely uh, because I had to move like overnight. Like like I got back from the tournament on like Tuesday, 
And by like that Friday, they were flying me out. And I was like, oh, and I didn't have, like I happened to have uh, a friend that lived in Los Angeles. Other than that, I didn't know anyone out there. And, and my license was suspended. So I couldn't even get a car. And I don't know if you, if you know anything about Los Angeles, that's not the city to live in without a car. And, and then on top, it's not like I was living in Hollywood or Santa Monica or even Burbank, like a place where there are people where I wasn't, you know, really Carson. People listening to this who live in LA were like, man, where's Carson? Like, it's that kind of place, you know? Yeah. Uh, just north of Long Beach, last city in LA before you hit Long Beach. So I, I spent a lot of time drinking. I would, I would go to the gym, work out, come back, drink, hang out on my computer, talk to people. I mean, I was I was really lonely. I didn't realize how lonely I was uh, mm. in retro until I, you know, I thought back about it and I realized that I was trying to drink to make myself happy, mm. which which is something I didn't even think I was doing. You know, well, one of the cool things, well, not cool things, one of the defining things about addiction is the denial aspect of it. And if somebody had told me I was an addict, I'd be like, what are you talking about? But the reality is that I was using, at that point, I was using alcohol to try to make myself feel better, self-medicate. And mm. and it, it, it did not work. It caused more problems uh, than, it, than it solved by a fairly significant uh, margin. I actually mm. talked about this, the, this part of my life uh, in my TED Talk about addiction and identity. Where you, mm. you start to you start to uh, see who, yourself as an addict, and then when you when you want to become not one, it's like, well, what does that look like? You have no idea, kind of deal. Mm. Uh, so at that point in my life, that's what, what, what's going on. So, a couple of questions: Was making it pro was that a dream of yours for a long time? What age were you when you moved to LA? <laughs> <laughs> so, so my my uh, my boxing journey is really interesting, man. Everything's a late bloom. I didn't step into the ring until I was twenty two. Mm-hmm. I went I went to a gym when I was twenty one, but my first fight I went until I was twenty two. Um, and then I was like, you know, let's see how far I can go, uh, how well I can do, and then and then I just happened to. You know, little by little, get better and better. Experience, experience, and then uh, a big break, and it made it made mm. a big difference. Now, there's that. That is, I don't want to say grossly oversimplified, but I'm leaving out some significant details uh, mm. to get the gist of the idea out there, which is that uh, it's, I stuck with it, and mm. once I saw where I was going, and I, I realized there could be a future, I was like, oh, you know, let's turn pro. Mm. And so you get to LA and you, you know, I guess your dreams have come true and yet you're feeling this intense loneliness and this disconnection. Were you cognizant at the time that you were using alcohol to try and shift that feeling? Uh, I had a moment where I realized it one day. I said, yeah, I'm trying to, you know, because there's what happens when you, when you drink, I think. I think you start to... You can't tell the difference. The causal relationship changes. It's it's not. You can't tell if it's I'm in a good mood, so I'm going to drink, or do I drink to become in a good mood? It, you you can't tell that the relationship gets reversed. 
So out there, I said, all right, I'm not in a good mood. I missed the socialization aspect because all my friends are back home. I'm going to drink. That's how it was, how it ended up working out for me. Mm. And was there any fear at that time or was there any concern thinking maybe I need to change this or were you kind of like, I, I got this under control because look at what I'm achieving on the outside. Well, here's the cool, you know, that is the cool thing, you know, when you're high functioning, man, like you, you get to, it's hard to raise an argument, mm-hmm. right? Because you, because you're doing what you, what you, you set out to do. You know, like like everyone's got this this idea of what addiction or an addict looks like, and it's somebody that's you know slayed out in the park, can't pay their bills, all these kinds of things. It ain't always that. In fact, I no. my experience has been most cases it's not like that. It's like a normal distribution. Uh, in the middle, you get your your regular run of the mill folk who are just going about their day, and everyone around them. Is is more or less at that level, so they don't even think there's something wrong. I read once somewhere that like 25 percent of people uh, drink the way their habits, the, the amount of alcohol they drink, that could be classified as alcoholism. But but it's like normal, uh, and I was like, wow, that's, that blows your mind, right? One in eight people like binge drink per week, not so okay. And then on the other ends, you get like. The, on the, on the left end of the, the the bell curve, you get like your your image of addiction, right? You know your your the people with like seven DUIs and and you know they're an AA and they got to get the slip signed at the end so they can show their PO that kind of deal. But on the other end, you get your people who are like going to work every day, holding it down, and and you couldn't tell. And and I think everybody on the left of that high end, they get the attention because they they look like they're a problem. Right? So when, when something looks like it's messed up, we, we that's when we've we got to fix it. But it's the other people. Those are the ones that are hurting the most, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, yeah. because no one's looking, no one's thinking something's wrong. And on top of that, it's very easy to lie to yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when everything's going well, it's very easy to go, this ain't right because because you know uh, you don't get addicted to something you don't enjoy. That's that's fundamental rule. Okay, uh, it's just that when when is it a problem or when what you get out of it does no longer uh, matches what it costs to get it. You know. Yeah, and the consequences start to present themselves, and yet you can't despite you can't stop despite those consequences. Yeah. I think that's where you, you know that there's addiction. I totally identify with being a high functioning alcoholic, and what you shared around the idea of when you're when you're achieving what you're meant to be achieving, whether that be in work or in your relationships, your personal life. I used to use that as a reason to to justify that I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. And I talked to my dad, who's also uh, in recovery from alcohol addiction. And he would, while I was still drinking, he'd gently try to suggest maybe there was a problem. And I'd always sort of say, shush, shush, no, there couldn't possibly <laughs> because look at like, look at the promotion I just got, or I just got married, or I just bought a house. Yeah. But the reality is none of that stuff, like that doesn't disqualify you from being an alcoholic. 
Whereas I think a lot of people use that reasoning to justify that everything's okay and it's just not the case. And again, like that's why I'm so passionate about removing the stigma because there's nothing wrong with having a dependency on alcohol. In the sense of it destroying your life, yes, we want to change it, but there shouldn't be any shame or stigma around it. Yeah, for sure. Ed, I'd really love to travel back now because you have a huge story and I would love people to understand how alcoholism played out in adulthood for you. But first, we need to understand what your childhood looked like. Can you share for me what it was like growing up for you? What was the environment like and how that all unfolded? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, what people refer to as, as an at-risk youth by all the, the factors. I was raised uh, by my mom. We lived in public housing and poverty. And and so with that comes a certain type of stress because because I think what people forget is that you know it, it's not like a nice family and when you wake up one day and boom you're in the projects and it's like okay you got this nice family unit and, and you know poof your dad's disappeared who knows what not nah, it's a it's a lot of things that contribute to make that situation happen that gets passed into the kids from from the parent that's that's raised or raising you. So uh, I, I I don't remember being very you know being safe or being particularly happy. I I, I just remember kind of existing. Uh, I I like to think actually as I look around at a lot of the people that I grew up with that that my situation and how I turned out it's 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 lucky a lot not lucky. There's a lot of luck because different timing, different people who's, who I cross paths, or even genetically uh, different gifts that allow me to interact with or make different friends. You know, that all sets me up to, to get away from it all. But what you don't what you don't realize until you're older and you try and look back and understand yourself and understand, like, why you do certain things or whatever, uh, is, is the role that your, your childhood you know, it has on you. I, I read it. I just actually saw a quote the other day because now, like, my Instagram is full of, like, all this stuff about, you know, being a parent and, and me and, and, and me and Anna, we swap stuff back and forth. And, and so, so the algorithm was like, oh, you must have kids. You would love this. Okay. <laughs> and one of the things that I saw that was shared, it was uh, somebody put a quote with, like, a kid running around in the field playing. It's like, you know, remember, uh, you only get one childhood and, and, how the how your childhood goes determines whether you, how your kids going to like perceive and interact with the world for the rest of their lives, and that mm. really that just I was like wow you know you want to talk about explaining some of the issues that, that you know not just that I've had and had to work through but that I've seen other people in my family have, you know have to work through or that I know and and it's spot on I mean you. you some things you don't think, you know, like normal things. I remember when I got to high school, and high schools where a lot of things changed for me because of the environment I got into. You know, I thought it was normal for for, for kids to, to always be, you know, fighting and, and have issues uh, with, with violence. I become comfortable to that. And you don't realize that there's a lot of studies that show a grown-up in my environment, you end up exhibiting a lot of signs similar to PTSD. Which makes a lot of, like, as I say, you know, first of all, PTSD, like, with guns around? Like, yeah, like, like you know, yeah, I, I got desensitized to the sound of gunfire. 
right? Mm. Which is, mm. you know, that's one of those things you don't you don't really think that a child, certainly in America, should ever get used to, but that's that's how it goes, and that has an effect on you. Mm. Make makes you makes you distrustful of authority and adults, and 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 there's all kinds of fear. You just walk around that you don't even know, right? That's the crazy thing that you don't even know it's just working through you. Mm. I was at a conference last week and I heard Dr. Gabor Mate talk about this exact topic and the impact that trauma has on childhood development. And what he was saying was that when a child isn't able to feel safe in their home environment and they're unable to trust their caregivers and they're unable to be authentic, which is to express all forms of emotion, then the response to that is disconnection. And what are people in addiction? They're, they're disconnected. So they're, because they're trying to find that connection at the bottom of the bottle or at the end of the pipe. And it just makes so much sense when it was explained like that. I thought, yes, I think this is just a common thread that runs through so many of us that have experienced addiction. Oh man, that, that, that's, you know, you want to talk about the, the disconnection, you know, one of the things that, that I've always talked about is, you know, people go, why are you, uh, what is the fascination with stoicism? How did you uh, arrive at that? And I always tell them, you know, stoicism found me. I didn't find stoicism because I, I dealt with my, with a mom, with a mother who was very emotional, emotionally manipulative. And, and I learned very early on that, that expressing my emotions uh, that, that didn't turn out very well for me. So I learned how to control them, not just to, mm. to protect myself, but to, to keep my sanity because because she's highly emotional. And I'm like, you know, I'm not I'm not a stupid person, thank goodness, because I think the I think the universe uh, punishes stupid people in, in and in just it's just really cruel. And what we'll define intelligence as the ability to recognize patterns and exploit them. And if you can't do that, you're going to continually be surprised by outcomes. And I put surprise in quotes. So, so thank goodness, intelligent enough to recognize, okay, there's a certain way to express myself and a certain way not to. And over time, you know, you start to think that, that most of the people around you, they have, they're the same way that most of the adults. And, and because it's... It's like if all your neighbors are middle class, you tend to going to have a going to have a lot of middle class attitudes and, and outcomes and perspectives. Same with rich people, or same with poor people. I can say all I want about about my mom, and and that it was my personal experience. But I've got enough experience to know now that it wasn't only my experience. A lot of people had the same deal, and a lot of the adults, so it was all nuts. So yeah, that disconnection, uh, I get that one hundred percent. Hmm. Can I ask, what's your relationship like with your mom today? Like, is there is there still resentment or is there peace? Well, she she passed. Uh, she passed. Wow, you know, it's funny. I always told her, I said, you know, take care of your health if you want to see your grandkids. Mm. She passed December eighteenth, and I always remember this not just because it was Christmas, but we we were supposed to go on a trip to Costa Rica. Because my wife is involved in travel and she she pretty much won this trip and we all we had to do was pay to get there. It's gonna be awesome. And my mom has been happening in the hospital since September. And and I don't know like what the what the experience what the health system is like in in Australia, 
But in America, it, it it's funny, man. Like you, she'd been in Oswald for months and just come and going, and then and then they were like, "Oh, we need you guys to come in," and it was like four kid, four people in white coats, and they were just and, and I, I had learned about them, and I can't remember the word, but it's pretty much like pre high, it's pretty much hospice in the hospital, and they're like, "Yeah, so just so you know, not really a lot of time left. Done everything we mm. could," and I was like, "Okay, great." And and you want to talk resentment? Because I thought about all the times I said to her, I was like, "You got to take care of your health. You have to take care of your health." My mom didn't make it to sixty; she died at fifty-nine of completely avoidable causes. Mm, and sorry for your loss. Yeah, you know, like I want to be sorry for it too. I really do. And, and I think every time I try to get, I try to feel sorry. And I think people from this this ilk who have gone through some similar will, will understand this because I don't want it to sound like I'm cold hearted or anything. Every time I try to feel sorry, I, I can't feel sorry because, because it was avoidable. If only, if only there was at some point, some, some discipline, some con- confrontation with reality to understand that what you're doing now is going to work. And, mm. and if she, and we found out Anna was pregnant February, March ish, right? It would have been March because this is a funny story about that. But, but like, um, now when I think about her, it's just, I don't, I don't have like warm thoughts, and I, I feel like I should. What I have is, I have this weird combination of intellectually, I know it could have been worse. But now that I have my own child, I go, how could you have made some of the decisions you made? It made me, which is another thing, having a son uh, for, for most of my life, because my dad died when I was 18. Uh, most of my life, my, my father was just uh, a memory. I didn't have an emotional reaction to him uh, one way or the other. Hmm. But I think about, like, you know, how I feel even when I'm away from, from my son all day taking care of stuff. And I go, how, how could you feel comfortable leaving us behind? Uh, and you know, it's not like he wasn't in my life at all. But to say he had a hand in raising me would be would be disrespectful to 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 the work because it was you know it wasn't perfect, but it was work. And she, I think she did try with the best she knew. It would be disrespectful mm. to the work my mom put in raising raising us. To to say that my dad had a hand in raising us, and and I don't think sometimes I go, am I holding them to a higher standard? And I remember that I've always thought parenthood was the highest standard. You had to be held, you had to be held to a high standard because you're bringing a life in. That if you mm-hmm. do everything correctly, uh, you're going, they're going to outlive you and have to continue in this world with the lessons you prepared them for. And I always felt like that was important. And then now that I, I feel the, the attachment and responsibility that I have for my own offspring, uh, mm-hmm. I have, it's a new sense of resentment. There's this bubble up for my father, uh, which has lessened, by the way, which has lessened the resentment I have for my mom because I think about how hard this shit is now. And there's two of us, two very attentive humans who work from home. And we are exhausted and stressed. So I think about how my mom did this uh, by herself, you know. Mm. But but you know those are the, those are the things. It 
that that that's happened. I think having a having a kid has has made me judge them way more harshly because. Mm. And I had already, when I was already a harsh judge, at least of my mother, because that's who the one who was around me, you know, growing up. My mom asked mm-hmm. me one time when she was alive, she goes, because you know, she was on my mailing list. And I always, you know, I write about my life. And she didn't like how I portrayed my childhood. So she, she left and she let me know she was leaving and all that, right? But one day before she did that, she said, why don't you ever write about your father the way you write about me? And I'm like, oh, I don't really remember, right? Don't really have any memories. Uh, now I, I I think back and it's like what did I, I there's, there's, there's nothing left of it there was no guidance and that's how one ends up breaking laws you know getting involved with substances making mistakes you know I'm, I'm mm. that's why I say I'm lucky I ended up with a with friends with my friends in high school uh, they if I hadn't met those people I have no idea where I'd be. They're, they're like the parents of my friends who are still friends to this day. They're the people I invited to my baby show. Along with my close mm. friends, you know, because that that's the family I have. I, I, I consider myself who I am now a product of them just showing me love, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it sounds like you've got this incredible opportunity to break that cycle, or that generational cycle. Oh man! <laughs> you know, I one of the things I, I think I made a tweet about it. I, I, I said I realized that that all the nonsense that led to me being born, the generations before it, and you know, being black in America, that means at some point they were slaves, and we, you know, verified that. And then, then the nonsense that led to my mom turned out the way she was, and my dad turned out the way he did. Um, it gets to start with me. So everyone going forward now, and, and it reminds me of a quote. You ever hear this quote? It goes, you know, the future's guaranteed when men plant the seeds for trees, they're never going to sit in the shade in, uh, sit in the shade up. Uh, that's how I feel with my son. I, I feel like mm-hmm. if I do everything right, I'm I'm never going to get to see uh, the, the fruit of that labor. Hmm. But my great grandson and his great grandson to get the ideas getting it right, you know, there's a big change that happens. And and, and I wouldn't say that's like motivating because I just don't have that attachment to to this like concept of setting up the generation like generational wealth. Well, the idea sounds weird to me, mm-hmm. but I do have this general sense of responsibility as as being a human. Uh, and on this planet, and for what I what I bring in, so I, I put another person here, and so my job is to make sure that they uh, are net positive. You don't you don't want to make a negative, right? Because somebody, no. like, because like you know, someone was someone was the Unabomber's parents. That's a net negative. Someone was Charles Manson's parents. That's a net negative. Uh, so so you know, whenever I make that, whenever I express that idea of having a net positive or raising one. I always got to say what the net, what the other end looks like. There are yeah, people right. who we can honestly say the world would be better if they weren't born. And I mm. want <laughs> the opposite to go. The opposite. I, I want people yeah. to go, oh, you know, it was great that this kid was born. And that, that starts, starts with me. I love that. I love that. You're doing good. You're giving back. I have another 
question about your upbringing. I imagine that you, along with the violence that you were exposed to, and you've written about seeing someone get killed, that that's that in and of itself is going to leave that impact, that lasting impact. But I'm also going to imagine that you were probably exposed to a lot of drugs and alcohol, yet you write about not drinking until you were, was it 17 or 18? Oh, I can't remember, but I know my birthday was, and I know where I had my first drink at, so probably 17, very close to 18. So, like, because I started drinking at 12, and I was using drugs by 14, and I grew up in a very, very different environment. So what what was going through you? What stopped you from experimenting earlier? Uh, you know, it terrified the shit out of me, to, to be totally honest with you. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I had seen what happened with, with I, you know, we grew up, I was born raised in the 80s. You know, I think we're, we're probably somewhere in the same age range. I'm 38. Mm. Um I was I was raised in the projects in the 80s in America that you know crack hit everything hard. I was raised by crack kids. I've been seeing people shoot heroin, smoke crack, and seeing how that turns out. And I didn't want anything to do with with substances. You know, I, I tried weed like two or three times in my life, and and all when I was over 18, right? So so the stuff like like drugs scared the shit out of me because I've seen mm. what those do. Alcohol is a different story because of the way, you know, alcohol scared me too, but what scared me more was was social outcasts, you know? Mm. So everybody everybody starts drinking. Now, I'm real fortunate that um, those friends I talked about all, you know, I ended up with with a, once again, a really solid group of friends in high school and they didn't drink. They had great relations with their parents, so there was there was no alcohol. We didn't drink, and so I didn't. I wasn't exposed to it. It wasn't until I got to college, to where we came, and we all got to college, and then we we it all you know we were bringing back our different experiences with alcohol parties that it got introduced, and it just seemed like I think a lot of people in America become you know start drinking this way, where it's like what is the thing to do, and so this mm-hmm. is what you do. But that's how that happened. That's why why it wasn't wasn't a thing for me because because I've seen it close up. But it wasn't until I got into uh, an environment where where a lot of the stigma was wiped away. Because you know it wasn't until I got to to college where I saw people drinking and they were like together, and I was like, "Whoa, wait a second! You mean not everybody's you know on welfare and you know." <laughs> mm-hmm. Waking up at three o'clock to the three a.m. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times we used to when we we lived in these projects. There were houses, man. We wake up and it'd be, be cats, and by I mean by cats, I mean people not like like you know felines. Uh, it'd be cats, you know, passed out on my porch, and I'm like, you don't even live here. They tried to they got to the wrong door. You see this? My mom had this awful relationship. That's why I did, this is why I never smoked. I, Either, you know, well, aside from it being disgusting, well, I had this terrible relationship with alcohol and, and cigarettes. I watched my mom get arrested from from drinking, and so it was a lot of experiences like that that I never mm. wanted to be part of. But it wasn't until I became, until I got to college age, and I was like, "Wow, well, I don't want to be lonely either." So. 
Mm, yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's, drinking is so closely associated to socialization and acceptance, particularly in those earlier years that I know for me, it was even a great a fear. I got sober at 32. And even then I was so afraid of what would happen to my friendships and my close relationships. It's crazy. Like, and that's the thing that everybody warned me about when I got sober. They said, you're going to lose friends. In fact, the, my, you know, I, when I got sober, the, the, my, my day of sobriety, the, the 23rd of December, I went to a, uh, I went to an AA meeting, got out, and I texted up my, my five friends, closest friends that it, lived in the city. And I was like, hey, man, you know, I got a problem and I got to step away from booze. And I understand if you guys don't want to be friends with me. These are people I know at this point longer than I have it. And I'm worried they're not going to be friends with me because that's how powerful it is, mm. you know. And and that's why a lot of people don't don't get sober, I think, is that they're worried about fitting in, having and not even fitting in. Uh, and this is one of the great things today. That, that I'm really happy about. There's been a, there's a really big push in the other direction, finally, towards mm-hmm. like the, the, the sober living, you know, between IG accounts making it popular and, and on top of that, the non-alcoholic selections are great because there are some good non, there are some good alcoholic drinks. I don't think most of them are good, but there are some that are good. And so if you can get that same taste and, and kind of the feeling to socialize without being, being hammered, and and make a fool of yourself. A lot of people are going to take that, and that that's happening. It wasn't always that way, though. Mm. <laughs> I'd love I'd love to know what's your relationship like today, ten years later, with those five friends that you. Oh man, it's, to? still they they're great friends. I'm I'm uh, so mm. grateful to them. You know, two of them mm. just got married this summer. Went to their wedding. Uh, they were at my my uh, baby shower. Um, because, because you know, I call Anna my wife, but we're not we're not officially married, and, and you know, mm. I'll do it when I have to. But we've been together eleven years. We're not really. It's one of those weird things, you know. You they're all from this middle class, and they see that, and that's what they strive for. I'm like, wow, it's got somebody together, and we have a good time, like it. So it doesn't carry that weight. Yeah. Far more concerned about the commitment that you you actually put forth, as opposed to having a state of recognizing. Um, yeah, and you know, one friend has has he has his kids and lives out of the state, but we we talk and everything. He's actually supposed to be in town next week, um, but I don't think I'll get to see him because I got to go out of town. But but no, uh, great relationship. Nothing changed. Mm. Uh, That's the whole thing, isn't it? We think it will, but it actually doesn't. And and the and the friendships you do lose are probably not. The ones oh that are meant man, to be forever anyway. Tell me about it. I went through this uh, crazy experience. You know, there were there were probably probably three or four people who when I, when I got sober they didn't they didn't buy the nine they were just like cool. And then as time went on, as, my, as it showed I was serious, but not only was I serious, but my life in all aspects really really changed. You know, two three years later, people that would have been well within their rights to say I don't want anything to do with you. Then that's when they have a problem, and and that's always you know that that really bugged me at first. I'm like, wait a second, you know, because yeah, because because I I made a post on social media. Um, I had one person decide to stop being friends with me because I said, uh, you know, I haven't had a bad day since I stopped drinking alcohol, and I was like, well, wow, you got to be kidding me. 
Uh, but I think a lot of times what happens is that you know it, it's it's okay to be your friend when they can't when when there's when the social uh, order is defined and you're beneath them. But when it becomes undeniable that this has changed and they haven't, this is key. When they they haven't and they really define the relationship uh, by by your inferiority, I've I've noticed that status changes really upset a lot of friends. If if the change occurs because of stagnation of a party, you know, it's one thing if you know we're both moving up and you know it's neck and change, growing change, together, growing together, uh, and and maybe you're not growing in the same direction or at the same rate, but it's positive and vertical, okay. But if one is really sitting still, not really making much progress, and you are, yeah, that that really messes with people. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally see that for sure. Ed, you got sober in 2013, but that wasn't your first attempt at sobriety. Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience with relapse? And for somebody who's listening that is perhaps currently in the throes of relapse, what should they know about that experience? You know, uh, when, when you look at the stats, they're weird, Okay. And I say they're weird because I was looking them up to make a point. I was like, well, they kind of make my point, but they kind of don't. Okay, so the the average, we want to like take the the average uh, attempts that someone needs to stop drinking is two. Okay, and you go, oh, that's that's not that crazy, but the median is like ten. Anybody with a sharp mind for numbers, you know. It, picks up what I'm about to explain. For a lot of people, they're able to stop an under 10 tries, but there is a select minority of people, and this increases the more number there are. Uh, they need a lot of tries. They almost become defined by relapse in their life, right? Mm, mm. Okay? So, if you if you relapse, I think it's really important to not feel bad, but to not accept the situation. Like like because the last thing you want to do is you, you don't want to become defined by being in recovery. Like I like I always had an issue with that that word recovery because there comes a point where you're recovered. Now, oh, it's a good way to describe it. All right, if you put your hand on a hot stove. While that burn is 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 hurting and bubbling and blistering and bandaged, you're in recovery from that wound. And when it's healed, you're recovered. That in no way, shape, or form means you should go put your hand back on the stove. <laughs> you learned your lesson. That's how I look at at, at recovery. Mm-hmm. There comes a point, and, and we'll say recovery is that period of time where you're figuring out who you are and how you're going to relate to the world, you're dealing with cravings, you're making amends with people, dealing with the guilt, all that stuff, right? Like all, all the things that, that you gotta go through when you kick the boots. All right. But once you've you've got a, a handle on it and you've you've recovered as much you, you you will, you've recovered. By no means does that mean you should go drink again. 
right? Mm. Just you know, or you start even closer to home. Uh, if you ingest poison, <laughs> once you recover from it, you don't go and ingest more. Like, oh, I'm good now. No, you don't. All right. Mm. I say all this to say, there are a lot of steps to recovery, man. Um, and I think more. Not only are there are a lot of easily identifiable, externally visible steps. So a lot of stuff you got to go through internally that you don't even know you're going to have to go through until you do it. Yeah. What were some of the tools that you used in when you were starting to get sober? Uh, well, well, I was really, once again, man, luck. <laughs> luck plays a big role in some of these things. Um, I was very busy. I was extremely busy. Um, when I got sober, I, I what was going on? I had... Just uh, enlisted, finished my basic training and my AIT uh, for the military. Just re-enrolled in school. Got a job at a bank and I was boxing. And I was trying to be like a really good boyfriend. And, and then, you know, now it works out because now we got a kid. And, and you know, so she, mm-hmm. she's been here. Because I just met her and I was like, you know, you seem like a really nice girl. I don't want to expose you to the nonsense. Like, like you, it'd be one thing if like you were just some like chick I met at the bar and, and you were not, but you're not that person. That's not like, like if this doesn't work out, let's have this not work out because, because I'm just an asshole and I can't figure it out. I don't want booze to be an issue. And then the turn out to be one of the best decisions of my life. It's why I have a son now, right? Okay. Mm. Uh, so I had a lot going. And and this is really important. And, and, and I, I touch on this in my TED Talk. I'm not like promote my TED Talk. It just so happens that, that this idea was central. I got to def- redefine myself. And I didn't know I was doing this. I got to redefine who I was and how I saw myself without alcohol. Because I was performing in school, my fighting career, the people I met in the military, right? Uh, this was this was all a new me. I was and I was meeting new people and doing new things, and I was this relationship was really all without the background of alcohol, so that I get. If you if you get sober and you don't change anything in your life, then what, what have you really changed? You, oh, in fact, here's what you did: you you dug you you dug a hole. You you pulled something out, and now there's just empty space. Something's gonna fill it, and it's probably not gonna be something positive uh, and useful for you if you don't actively work to fill it. Okay, hmm. uh, I just happened to actively work to fill that hole. So the body, you know, I didn't go out. Of, I wasn't out after dark with, without without Anna. For almost a year, for over a year uh, after my sobriety day, I looked at someone one day because I know why I went out. I went out to go see a fight, and that, that fight was like January 5th or something like that, uh, 2015. Mm-hmm. Had no interest in drinking. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was easy. Uh, but but I was I was building a new life, a new purpose. I was really focused on accomplishing something. And so mm-hmm. if, if you're having trouble staying committed, to your sobriety, you're probably trying to quit in a vacuum. It it doesn't work that way. You got to go and you got to have a reason 
to quit. You got to have something on the line, something you're trying to gain. But if it's just like, oh, you know what? I'm going to try a new day. Stop drinking booze. And it, and it doesn't matter how bad you behave when you want to influence. That ain't going to cut it. Because after you feel good, you drash and lost to yourself. And you go, you know, well, I'm good today. Maybe I can maybe I can put my hand back on the stove. Nah, not quite, right? Go, go do something else. But if you got, you know, stuff you're trying. Something, I always say you need something you're running away from and something you're running towards. I had both of those things in spades. Uh, and, and it really helped. It, 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 when I look at the times I tried to quit before, it's what I, I didn't have that. Mm, mm. Ed, I've listened to your TED Talk and it's brilliant. So anyone listening, go check it out. In your TED Talk, you open up with the phrase, hi, my name's Ed and I'm an alcoholic. I would love to know firstly, do you identify as an alcoholic still today? And what's your opinion on the term alcoholic? Because there's quite a large subset within the sober community, you know where I'm going with yep. this, who don't agree with using the term alcoholic. Alcoholic now, use I, disorder and, you know. Yeah, there's everything, right? Um, sober curious. I, I, and I, it's all good. My, like, my opinion is t- do what works for you. I identify as an alcoholic and that works for me. But I, I can also understand the argument that it has a negative connotation and therefore perhaps doesn't work for some people. What are your thoughts? Okay. Um, man, this quote, I hope I get it right. It's like I'd rather go through life uh, believing I'm an alcoholic and and dealing with that than trying to convince myself uh, that I'm not and and dealing with you know that or you know right so all right so it's like I'd rather go through my life uh, not drinking, convinced that I'm an alcoholic, than trying to quit drinking and convinced that I'm not. All right. Yeah. So I love that. So look, these are just words, right? Yeah, okay, they're not just words, and we'll get to that. But for the most part, whatever whatever helps you make a change, because here's something that I. I 100% believe, and I don't get on my soapbox about this, but we're on a podcast about sobriety. Uh, so, so, so if you're listening to this message, this ain't nothing new to you. I 100% believe there is no positive to alcohol. And, and I used to, I didn't, I, I didn't have that belief for most of my life. I didn't have that belief for most of my sobriety. But lately, the more I, I learn, the more I see, the more I am convinced that there is no positive to alcohol. We just made alcohol the legal one because um, that genie was already out the bottle. And when we tried to put it back in, we, we single-handedly created the, 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 the worst natural experiment in history. You know, in this country, I don't know how they handed it in Australia. I don't know how your, your history, but in this country, we have the 18th and 21st Amendment. You're, nothing else you'll ever see. The 18th Outlaw and alcohol. The twenty first said, "Ah, we fucked up. Uh, <laughs> we're tired of people getting killed, and Al Capone is ruining this country because people are gonna do what they're gonna do, right?" And it's the same mentality that, that hopefully they apply to to drugs, and and they tried to apply mm. to guns, but that's a different story. Well, but they got to because you know somewhat of a tangent, but this is this is relevant to the idea. Uh, your country is is a model for getting rid of guns. You're also an mm. island that is like not 
populated. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> so there's only one. There's, there's really only two ways in, and both are very controlled ports and all that, right? Are ways of entry. Meanwhile, you know, what we we share a border with Mexico. Good luck keeping them from getting guns in, and, and all that, right? But uh, my point in bringing all this up is is that you 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 gotta whatever works to make you stop drinking is what works for you and for some people right that's gonna be i'm an alcoholic let me kick that out i don't care if you are an alcoholic or not if that's what you need to to cut something out of your life that has no positive association or no positive in it, by all means, go for it. You know, alcohol is a carcinogen, right? Like, whatever you mm-hmm. need to get that out of your system, go for it, okay? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, when the whole gluten-free fad came. The difference is, like, it's kind of annoying. You know, there's gluten in, like, everything. <laughs> You're not really allergic. You might you might just need to, like, do some other stuff, get in shape, be better. Mm-hmm. But it's like mm-hmm. booze is just like that. I don't care if you are sober curious, you're an alcoholic. I guarantee you, whatever your reason is, uh, your life is improving because you have reduced or cut out alcohol entirely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, with that all said, there is a, I don't even want to say a subset, I mean, because that's how it started, is this people like us who, who have a relationship with alcohol that is such, and this is how I personally define addiction. Uh, if we want to like get away from all the technical the technicalities and the uh, the medical definitions, but the colloquial one, I think an alcoholic is someone who consumes alcohol uh, to a point where it interrupts their ability to accomplish their goals and and it causes their life to be at a net and it is a net negative or in a negative place. You know, have, like like in other words, like you know, having a glass of wine with dinner ain't gonna be a big deal. Uh, putting down, you know, five gin and tonics and and hitting on the waitress with your wife because you're drunk and then getting into a fight, that's probably a problem. You kill somebody behind the wheel, that's a big deal, right? That's that, that that's where we're at, all right? Hmm. No, no matter, I think there's some of us, for whatever reason, we got to drink that way. Yeah. I think the worst thing that, that that's going on is, is, you know, and it's getting better, thank goodness, is, we promote that way of drinking to young people. That's, you know, that, that was like, and I think it still is. That's the, your tradition, right? It's your 21st birthday. Got to get blackout drunk. Like, you realize how bad that is for you? Like, and, and for some people, it's just a formality. They've been drinking like that for years. Yeah. Right? So, uh, TLDR, I don't care what you call it, uh, just... If, if it helps you improve, it helps you improve. Yeah. Amen to that. Ed, there is one final question that I ask all my guests to close out the show. And I'd love to ask you that now. What are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live life today? Happy, joyous, and free. Uh, yeah, man. First, I don't take anything personally, even when it is personal. Um, and, and that's, because I think the moment you take it personally, uh, you you get negative emotions, and those cloud your ability to to deal with it rationally. And 
And however you feel about emotions or being being expressive, one thing that no one can disagree with, uh, nothing gets better when you handle it angrily. Even if you should be angry about it, you're likely going to do mm-hmm. something that, that is, is not going to make your life better or solve the problem. So that's the first one. I don't take anything personally, uh, even when it is personal. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer, you know, treat everyone as if, as if they're um, as if they're God, right, man? Try and treat everybody, and 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 that's the best way to say it, or rather, the most general way to say it. I, I, there's probably a better phrasing, but I say that because I don't want I don't want to get caught in the treat everybody the way you would be treated or want to be treated because some of these people, man, they got they got terrible self esteem and 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 an ability to relate to themselves. So instead, I say you know treat everyone as like like. They are the best person uh, and the best way you want to treat them. That that's gonna open up a lot of a lot of doors for you. And like uh try to make everything better. And if, if you can't do that, like everything you, you come in contact with, everything you do, try to improve the surroundings before, you know, as they were before you got there. And if you can't do that, mm-hmm. don't mess anything up. I think I think, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you go that that route. You, you're going it's like, to like well. Yeah, leave the world a better place than how you found yeah, it. Yeah, leave the world a better place. Leave the world a better place than how you found it. And if you can't do that, just don't fuck it up. Like that's <laughs> that. If people follow that mentality, we can we can you know take care of a lot of problems. But but that you know especially that last one that's a, that's a non-negotiable. I've, um, well, whenever I'm in, I'm in, I'm confronted with a, we'll call it a moral or ethical dilemma. I always ask myself, will this make everyone better, or the situation better, or or will it make it worse? That usually mm-hmm. guides me in the right direction. Very rarely will it be a wash, even if I don't like that I have to do it. Once I recognize that this is the the best way forward for the overall situation. I usually benefit, but if I don't, it's probably because I made a mistake at some point and that requires uh, me to be honest with myself. Hmm. Yeah. What a beautiful way to end the show. A really, really awesome message. Ed, if people want to find out more about you, contact you on socials, where should they go? Well, I'm at Lattimore everywhere. Um, So... Twitter at Lattimore, Instagram at Lattimore. The website is at Lattimore.com. If you want to sign up to the newsletter, you can do that at Lattimore.com slash newsletter. Facebook. Yeah, I have signed up. It's awesome. <laughs> Definitely is, everyone is sign at up. Lattimore. Newsletters at, um, but new, not newsletter. LinkedIn is at Lattimore. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, this is my name. I'm, I'm really happy, you know, that, that I got my name in, in every place, except YouTube. You know, someone, and, and the page that exists, they just won't let me change that Lattimore. I'm at Lattimore 1 as a result. Ah, oh, no. <laughs> Look, I'll pop all of that information in the show notes. And yeah, you're a prolific writer. So anyone that wants to sign up to that email, I highly recommend it. Ed, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so much for joining me here on the show today and sharing your story. It's been an absolute delight. Hey, thank you for having me. It's been a good time.